0: Lift off. We have
1: a lift off. Good evening, I'm Eric Erickson here at WSB in our Live Lounge with State Senator Hunter Hill running for Governor of Georgia uh, as a Republican uh, with four other candidates thus far in the race as a Republican. Uh, where all have you been on the campaign trail lately?
0: Well, we've been all over the state. We got in the race in April, it's been very exciting as we've gotten around the state sharing our vision for uh, true conservative leadership. I've uh, been to Savannah a bunch, we've been to Macon, we've been to Thomasville, we've been to Columbus, Augusta, Dalton, we've been all over the state. Uh, it's been very encouraging.
1: Now, you were in the state senate and decided to step out of the seat to, to run full time. Uh, why do that?
0: Well, you know, and I'll get to this further in the, in the program, but my entire passion to have been involved in politics in the first place was to make a meaningful difference for our conservative values and I felt uh, constrained and unable to do so uh, in the Senate, but when we began this campaign, and began to share our vision around the state, began to get traction, um, it didn't make sense to try to do both. You can't do both of those things well. You can't be a good senator representing the interests of your constituents and uh, wage a meaningful campaign across the state, so we decided to pick one and we picked our campaign for governor uh, and we're on the right track to, to be the next governor.
1: Your state senate district was the Buckhead area. Um, you've lived here, but you've also you've got a military background that set you apart to some degree from most of the other candidates running.
0: Well, I appreciate that. You know, I'm I'm proud of my military service. I mean, in terms of the, the leadership lessons that I learned, not only at West Point getting to play college football, but going to Ranger school and then leading five different teams on three combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, not only did I get to learn leadership through those experiences, but as a military officer, you're executing national policy. And I felt like our country had gotten way off our founding principles of limited government, and free enterprise and individual responsibility. And I felt like the fight for the future of the country was not in Iraq and Afghanistan. It was in uh, the state house and in the halls of Congress.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that, that raises the question I was gonna ask, why get into politics anyway, when the, politics, particularly in the United States, In the 21st century, uh, going all the way back to President Obama's tenure, has more and more of a negative connotation in people's minds. Why jump in?
0: Well, I mean, like I said, you know, if I'm going to put what I love about the oath, the oath to the constitution that a military man or woman takes, I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and then I'll bear true faith and allegiance to the same. Same oath that our politicians give. The difference is the military man or woman is willing to risk their life to uphold their oath, and the career politician is not even willing to risk their own reelection. And so, you know, <laughs> to uphold their oath. And so it was clear to me that if you want to make a difference and move the needle to get back to our constitutional foundational principles, the fight is in politics, not in the military. What
1: did you do before politics after the military?
0: Well, so it's sort of an interesting story. I did five years, two combat tours with 101st Airborne, uh, decided to get out, didn't want to make a career of it, got into the real estate business in Atlanta in 2005, things were going well and uh, we were building Atlantic Station and all this stuff was going very well in the, in the economy. Then I got an unexpected letter in the mail uh, recalling me back to active duty. Uh, if you recall in 0607, we had the surge in Iraq and I knew I had a three-year commitment. When you go to West Point, you have five years active and three on the individual ready reserve. And I got reactivated and sent back to Afghanistan. So my, my new professional civilian career was, was interrupted and I took the call to go serve again. And it was in that third tour where not only were we in combat, but I was also mentoring and training the Afghan National Police. And um, I felt a calling to, to serve in political capacity. Came home, got back in that my position in the real estate business, and also waged a, a campaign for state senate at the same time.
1: So what you're saying is God spared you the economic downturn by sending you to <laughs> Afghanistan.
0: Well, I got back just in time for it. I got back just in time for it in 2008. But um, but the but the Lord did do a lot of great things for me. I can tell you that.
1: The first time I really got to do you was in the the legislative fight that you really led and, and drafted the first piece of legislation to allow all the local breweries in Georgia to sell to customers who were coming in. Uh, and, I, I mean, it surprised me, that the uphill fight for what seemed like common-sense legislation, and I wasn't there trying to push the legislation.
0: Well, it, it's just a small microcosm of so many things that we that I fought for during my short time in the Senate that there's common-sense free market ideas that should be adopted, but there's a political class and folks that wish to protect the status quo that are against things that to regular consumers seem like common sense. And so that, that craft beer bill, I really took on um, as, as, a, as a way to help small business breweries, as a way to have free market principles, and it was common sense. So when you do a small business brewery, it is a very capital intensive endeavor to start that business. And I thought, well, why don't we just let them sell a little bit of their craft directly to the consumer at retail prices, and then that way they can reinvest in their business and grow, grow jobs, etc. And plus, consumers would like it. And you wouldn't have believed the blowback in terms of that I was breaking up this whole system. And, and so we, we fought and we won a lot because of, of people like you, because you engaged in it and, and talked to the people, and people were like, this is ridiculous, and, and in, in fact... Uh, it wasn't just um, our legislation and the efforts we made in the Senate, but we essentially shamed the leadership into doing what was what was right.
1: We see time and again, the leadership in the state seems to take more direction from uh, business leaders in the state, particularly of Fortune 500 companies. And it, there's a perception, in fact, it was one of the big issues of people who wrote in asking questions, that it, it seems like the state favors attracting new business to the state instead of helping or fostering a business-friendly environment for existing businesses.
0: Exactly. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'd be happy if Amazon came. That'd be great. But we don't need to go out and buy industry to come to our state with public dollars. What you do is you create a, a limited government framework that's fair and predictable for business, low tax, low regulatory environment, make sure that we're investing in our roads and bridges, and that we're elevating K-12 education and businesses will just come organically. They don't need to have the purview of the government to invite them here and to pay for them to come here. Let the free market ensue. That's why I want to eliminate the income tax in Georgia. We are bordered with two states that don't have an income tax. Texas to our west doesn't have one. We're competing against other southeastern states for economic development. And the only way that we're able to compete is, with, is through a strong Department of Economic Development instead of having uh, you know, a very fair and flat system that's predictable, and that naturally invites capital and investment to come into our state. And that's what my plan for Georgia is all about.
1: Do you worry at all about the governor and and economic development departments bringing in big businesses to the extent that it changes Georgia culture. Charles de Gaulle, for example, had a a great quote that there was Paris and then there was France. And a lot of people feel like there's Atlanta and then there's Georgia. Um, But as Atlanta grows bigger and bigger, it changes the culture in the rest of the state.
0: Well, again, the government should neither bring in nor decline business. It should create a fair framework for businesses to come here and operate and grow and for families to prosper. So I don't like the notion of the government picking winners and losers and that's why I want to focus on our tax and regulatory environment. I want to make sure we're focused on the core competencies of government from a funding standpoint, specifically transportation. Career politicians have underfunded transportation for 40 years and then when transportation dwindles down to 5% of the budget, they say, oh my gosh, we're not spending enough on transportation, let's raise taxes. And that's not the appropriate solution. You need to do the meaningful cuts along the way And the non-core competencies of government and fund that priority and that's why i want to double our investment in transportation in my first term without raising taxes
1: one of the questions that has come up repeatedly from listeners is uh, should we rethink how we do authorities in the state whether it's with marta with the airport or what have you to have a centralized agency to help plan transportation in atlanta so the fractured system
0: in, um, in, the, in the metropolitan region of Atlanta, that makes a lot of sense. And, and candidly, our mayor of Atlanta is not going to be the one to lead that charge. I mean, you've got the mayor who um, is, is sort of the, the, the traditional mayor of Atlanta, of course, but they only have 450,000 constituents, whereas the metropolitan Atlanta area serves about 6 million um, people. So I, what I think you've got to have is leadership from the governor and from the General Assembly to help create a regional transit plan or regional transportation plan. Um, And so I think they're working on some of that stuff in the Senate right now, and I think that's appropriate.
1: How do you sell the rest of the state on things like this, uh, either attracting businesses in or things that seemingly benefit the metro area at the expense of
0: everyone else? You know, when I go to South Georgia and North Georgia, if you're not wedded to a community, um, then why would you start a business in Thomasville if you can go 25 miles south and start your business in Florida in a no income tax area. Dalton is having a very difficult time competing against Chattanooga to the north with no income tax. So I believe that my plan to eliminate our income tax is going to be very beneficial for parts of our state that have been neglected in terms of business development. But that's not a silver bullet. You also have to invest in more transportation options. Transportation is sort of that key element that businesses are looking at. How do you move goods and services to market? Do you have access to new markets? And so making those meaningful investments in areas outside of Atlanta is going to be good for job and and investment uh, from outside from other states and for for capital to grow organically that's already in the state.
1: This is Eric Erickson on WSB talking to State Senator Hunter Hill running for governor. When we come back, we'll get into some of the other big issues and questions from the crowd, including religious liberty, and how do we shape a religious liberty compromise of the state, the rural-urban divide, and also, what does he want to do with education in the state? Let me interrupt for a quick word here from our sponsors. I have never liked electric toothbrushes. Never. My wife has used one forever. And I've never liked them. And the reason I don't like them is twofold. One, the heads are so big, they're hard to get in the back of my mouth and brush. And two... I travel a lot and if they happen to turn on in your bag, you got to carry your charger with you so you can recharge them. It just, it's a hassle. I would rather use a regular old toothbrush. Even some of the newer toothbrushes though, their heads are getting big. They're trying to add all sorts of bells and whistles. It's just a toothbrush. Can I get an electric toothbrush that's just a toothbrush that gives me all the vibration benefits of one of the electric toothbrushes you get in the store, but without it being so big, it can't fit in the back of my mouth. I finally found one and it's Quip. Now, the interesting thing here quip is a sponsor of the podcast and i was going to order them anyway i saw their ads on instagram i thought this looks like i could actually get in and reach the back of my teeth uh, without it being awkward sure enough the cool thing about quip is it has pulses that alert you when to switch sides making brushing the right amount effortless after two minutes it turns off really easy to navigate getting top bottom back front based on the pulses that it generates and because the thing cleans your mouth should also be clean, they've got a subscription plan. It refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule, delivering new brush heads every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. So you don't have to worry about refreshing your toothbrush. It comes to you with free shipping for $5 every three months. Now, Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com Eric, E-R-I-C-K, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com eric. Now, to spell it out for you, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash E-R-I-C-K. Get Quip today, folks. I've got one, and by the way, my wife, who has long used an electric toothbrush, she likes the Quip better. Started using it. Guess why? Fits in the back of her mouth with better ease and still gives her the great brushing. So go to getquip.com eric today. Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here on News 95.5 AM 750 WSB with State Senator Hunter Hill running for governor. As a Republican, you've been crisscrossing the state. And uh, David from Buford, who's here in the crowd, wanted to know what departments uh, in the executive branch you would be in favor of shrinking or eliminating to help reduce the size of government.
0: When I talk about having a more limited and focused government that delivers results for taxpayers, I'm talking about a scenario that has occurred through the years where we are a jack of all trades and a master of none and we're underfunding the core competencies. So what I want to focus on from a funding standpoint is public safety, transportation and education and mostly K-12 education and uh, technical. Um, Everything that's not in those categories we need to bring onto the table and look very hard at whether whether the money that we're spending that is the public's money is delivering results in the areas that we're trying to spend it. We have spent billions of dollars in the areas of, of life change through the years where we're trying to help people move from bad to good or good to great. These are areas we all care about, but traditionally ministries and nonprofits deliver far better results than the government in these areas. And we need to be very mindful about how we're spending our tax dollars. In the business world, you add value into the marketplace first and then you get paid. And the government the government gets paid first and then legislators sit around and determine what sort of value they're going to deliver to the taxpayer and that reverse construct makes us not sensitive to when we're not adding value with our expenditures and so we need to focus on the core competencies public safety transportation and education and cuts need to be in any other area uh, that is not in those categories
1: i hear from teachers all the time and we got several questions from teachers who feel like the deck is stacked against them when they have kids coming into school who are from broken homes, uh, impoverished areas, and yet they're told to teach them tests and and bring them up to speed, and they feel like education starts at home and and they're being told to do something that's impossible. What do you do to restructure this?
0: You know, government-centric education is failing our our students, of course, but it's also failing our teachers and our, our principals. We have so many burdensome regulations on teachers and principals that teachers can't teach and the principals aren't able to lead and enact the discipline that parents truly want them to enact, but they're fearful that if they uh, lead in a strong manner that they might be sued or, or fired. Um, and so Title 20, which is, of course we're on radio, nobody can see my hands, but it's thicker than the Bible um, with rules and regulations. And any candidate that comes in and says they're going to fix K-12 public education uh, because they're smarter, they have better ideas, don't believe them. What we need to do is compete against Title 20 by empowering families with the resources we're already spending on on K-12 and allow parents and communities to choose how and where to to educate their kids and I believe that will elevate all boats in K-12 education. It's a free market principle of competition. When we come back, we'll
1: get into State Senator Hunter Hill's vision for what Georgia would look like if he were governor. I'm Eric Erickson on News 95.5 AM 750 WSB. Terry Eric Terrickson here, News 95.5, AM 750, WSB, the nation's most listened to news talk station. I'm joined by State Senator Hunter Hill, running for governor in Georgia as a Republican. Before I, I go any further, we talked about your military experience and having gone to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, one of the, the folks in the crowd stopped me and, and asked if I would ask you a question of has it your travels abroad, not necessarily your military service, but just experiencing overseas, has that shaped the way you think as it comes to domestic politics and policy in Georgia?
0: Well, absolutely. My military experience in particular, especially in Afghanistan, you know, we were, our mission was to mentor and train the Afghan National Police. And that the subtext of that was to win the hearts and minds of the Afghans. The thought being if we show them how to police their communities and defend their country, that maybe then the next step will be they'll suddenly be interested in democracy and maybe capitalism and all these other things. But you can't take your value set and convey it to other people with a helmet on your head and a gun in your hand. And so that was very instructive to me that really the war in Afghanistan was really big government run amok, sort of like international welfare. And so. That's when I started to say, you know, we've gotten way off our founding principles of limited government, free enterprise, and individual responsibility, and that's why I wanted to get involved in it, making policy as opposed to just executing it. Because as a military officer, I'm going to take my orders, we're gonna, I'm going to build the team, we're going we're to conduct the mission, and we're going to execute. But um, being a boots-on-the-ground person, um, I realized that the philosophy driving the mission uh, was broken. What does a Hunter
1: Hill administration look like in Georgia? We've essentially, we've had 16 years of Republican governors, but both have been Democrat converts. (laughs) Um, Whichever Republican (laughs) gets elected will actually be, based on the current slate, it'll be the first time we've ever had someone elected governor in Georgia who actually has been a lifelong Republican. What does that look like to you?
0: Look, for 40 years we've been campaigning on less government, less taxes, and more freedom. And across this country, we have not done enough, when given the chance to lead, to implement those values into policy. That's what my candidacy is all about. I believe in people. I believe in families. I believe in communities more than the government. So what I believe ultimately will happen after eight years of my administration is going to result in stronger families, stronger communities, because the government is going to be uh, doing less in those regards to try to, fail at lifting them up, to be very honest with you. I think that we need to empower ministries and nonprofits and deliver results in the areas that only the government can. Uh, That's public safety, transportation, and in the state of Georgia, because we're constitutionally mandated to do education, uh, we need to fund that. But again, I want to empower families to have more choices and options.
1: Well, let's stick with education for a while. The governor tried to pass his initiative to take over failing schools at the state level and then pass them back once they they got up to speed. Did you support that legislation?
0: I did support that legislation. It was the best option that was available to me at that moment. Um, I don't believe ultimately that a government-centric approach is going to work long term. At the same time, as I voted for that bill, I was supporting school choice legislation, uh, and I actually tried to amend the final bill with, with school choice legislation. I think a mix of deregulating education and empowering families to have more choices and options is ultimately going to elevate all boats in K-12. The, the government-centric solutions are not working. We can't say that the government hired, you know, school, changeover, uh, school turnover officer at the local level failed, so maybe if we hire them at the state level, it'll suddenly work. You know, I think that government's government and we have to have incentives, carrots and sticks that are available to us in, in, in the free market economy.
1: How do you, if you implement free market principles, you've got a lot of rural areas of the state that don't have huge infrastructure, but they still have to pay for the, the costs of government. Um, free market principles, I, I think, would would encourage people to go to areas of the state that are more developed. How do you balance out the needs of rural Georgia? with the suburban and urban areas in the state?
0: I've had great conversations with rural legislators about this issue. When the, when the discussion is, there's only, we only have one school in our community, what would School Choice do to help us? Well, many times that reason that they only have one school um, is because nobody in that area has the resources to have established you know, a different alternative but if you empower that community with resources, you've essentially created markets that were not there before, and then communities can come together and stand up alternatives. That's number one. Number two, you know, you might be able to elevate that public school if it is truly a community school, um, you know, by having the the deregulation that would ensue if you did have free market principles. And so what I mean by that is if you had school choice, you're gonna see market principles take effect. And I do believe that Title 20 will change over time, not because of legislative changes from legislators, but people will demand that those changes be made to keep pace with what's going on in the, in the new market that has been created by that, the funding. That may have sounded confusing, but it's basically you're competing against the old way of doing things, and in that process it's elevating the game in K-12 statewide.
1: One of the conversations in the legislature right now is on rural broadband and trying to uh, find ways to incentivize the building of broadband infrastructure in rural areas to attract businesses, not necessarily to Atlanta, but to a Macon or a Valdosta or a Savannah where their employees can then live out in more rural areas and still have those amenities. Uh, what are your thoughts on the state getting involved in this?
0: If we know anything about technology, it becomes obsolete, you know, that what you invested in today is obsolete within five years. So the last thing I want to get involved in is the government investing in technologies or, or concepts um, for uh, rural broadband. Um, however, rural broadband, or I should say access to high speed internet, um, is sort of the transportation networks of the future. It's sort of that access to new markets and um, ideas, education, and even healthcare in the future. So there's a compelling reason why the government would be interested in building out a rural infrastructure. I just don't want it to be government-led. There's, there's incredible technologies that Google and AT&T are, all, are already developing. Where the government can be involved is to make sure that we deregulate the process, get um, the local governments away from um, burdening the, the infrastructure that would go in. One thing that the state could do is offer a tax break incentive for the labor um, to put to help um, those companies provide the labor to put out the infrastructure, but I don't want the government to be involved with um, the technology that would, would, you know, that we would ultimately deploy.
1: On the issue of transportation that we talked about a little while ago, um, we've got regional airports around the state, um, the Middle Georgia Regional Airport down in Macon. Uh, you've got the, the situation in Paulding and, uh, County and Lawrenceville that have tried to. Bring in commercial aviation before and there seems to be a strong monopolistic impulse with the Atlanta airport with Delta and others to deny the expansion of air services around the state. Uh, How do you combat that as governor and and follow up with that I'll go in and and give you the follow-up question of how do we believe the gubernatorial candidates on these issues when we see time and time again governors coming in saying they support these things and then Uh, Delta and Home Depot and Coke and the Chamber of Commerce convince them otherwise?
0: Yeah, as I travel the state, it's just something that I truly believe. Georgia does not reach its full potential if we continue to be a one-city state. And, um, you know, we can't just be Atlanta. Um, That's not going to help us. So the best way to help us have more robust uh, cities around the state or communities other than just Atlanta is to potentially have other airports. And, you know, I support... Um, the study that's going on in the state Senate, um, Senator Burt Jones put forth a bill to look at um, the state taking over the airport, in the sense of not not a power grab. There, what it is is it's saying that is a regional airport. That is something that is serving far greater than just the 560,000 residents of the city of Atlanta. Um, and if the state were in charge of ports, you know, airports like we are of the ports, and uh, you know, down in Savannah. I think that would allow us to more holistically look at the kind of infrastructure we're providing from a statewide standpoint and maybe make meaningful investments in other uh, areas of the state so that other areas of the state can grow.
1: Several of the other metropolitan areas in in the state have looked at, I I know Macon has and Savannah has in particular, uh, ways to bring rail systems into those areas. there's an argument that if it was economically viable, private rail industry would already provide it. But there's another argument there that private rail industry handles cargo and it relies on the government for people. I mean, what's your vision for transportation in the state look like?
0: Well, on rail in particular, there are some fundamentals that, that, that need to ensue before you make that large investment. We know that investment in rail is $100 million more expensive per mile than, than rubber tire transits, as, as it's called. And so you don't wanna make meaningful, you know, meaningful investments of cash without making sure that there's gonna be that return there. Um, and we know that in you know, highly dense areas, transit rail really works well. But there is tons of sprawl in the metropolitan and Atlanta area and we're, we have no shortage of land in Georgia. We're a very big state. Um, so rail has never been, um, at the top of my mind, as something we, that we need to invest in. If somebody can make, the, make it make sense for me financially, I will definitely look at it. But my plan long-term for transportation is um, bringing the right people around the table. I'm not suggesting I have all the answers. We need to get the demographers around the table. We need to get the traffic engineers around the table. And of course, the, uh, the DOT commissioner is going to be the one guiding the strategic plan. Here's what has been lacking in my short time in the Senate. It's the willingness to bring to bear the funding that is required to make these investments. In other words, the ideas are there. We know what we need to do generally uh, in transportation, not only in Atlanta, but statewide. What has lacked is the willingness to fund it. And that is why my commitment is to double our investment in transportation uh, without raising taxes, because that is such a link to quality of life and economic development to make these key investments. And let me just share quickly one with you, the truck transit route. If you make all this investment in the ports down in Savannah, to bring in more uh, cargo, well then when it hits landside, we need to make sure that we have the infrastructure to get those additional containers to, to markets faster. We need to expand I-16 west to LaGrange or Columbus and then take a vertical route north uh, so that truck traffic that's not destined for the Atlanta area doesn't have to go through Atlanta to get to, you know, Memphis, Nashville, you know, these other western areas. Um, How do you,
1: how do you expand transportation funding in the state without raising taxes?
0: You have to figure out other meaningful areas to cut. So, so when I looked at the budgets in the 70s, when metropolitan Atlanta was booming and the entire state was growing at a rapid rate, transportation was 15% of the state budget. It dwindled down to 5% and then all the alarms went off and said, we've got to raise taxes. Well, I voted against that tax increase because I was doing work behind the scenes to say, look, if we reallocate this, 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 and this, we will be able to fund that same amount that those new taxes will bring in. Um, obviously, I didn't win the argument, but the, uh, the, the point being is um, we need to do the hard work that people elected us to do. It's very easy to allocate all the resources in a way that says, um, this makes that person feel good, let's invest in that, and this makes that person feel good. And it, it, it just, it, it's not doing the tough work that we were elected to do to judiciously allocate these resources. And again, we've got to prioritize public safety, transportation, and education, and all the other things in which we spend money, we've got to take a hard look at make sure we're delivering results. If we're not delivering results, uh, we need to cut the spending.
1: There are constituent groups vocal constituent groups for education in the state. Um, there are business community interests for, in, uh, for infrastructure spending in the state. Um, how do you balance those out? It seems like we get into a fight over resources all the time in the state, and the legislative solution has been always to look at not ways to cut or not ways to reallocate, but ways to find new funding or rain, rainy day funds. How do, how do you bring all those constituent interests to bear to make a decision?
0: The, the decision shouldn't be between education and transportation. Those are two fundamental things we have to focus on. What has occurred through the years is the rapid growth in, um, in employee type spending, where we're, we're spending so much money on, on, on government employees and pensions and things of that sort. Healthcare is a huge driver of cost. Um, and so things like, you know, the whole spectrum of, of higher education and. And Medicaid and these things all have to be brought to the table if we're not delivering results in those areas then we need to look at meaningful ways to cut spending and and hard assets which is what infrastructure in is what infrastructure is uh, has high return.
1: Eric Erickson here with State Senator Hunter Hill when we come back his pitch to you why you should vote for him ahead of the rest of the pack. It's Eric Erickson here in my final couple of minutes with State Senator Hunter Hill running for governor. Hunter, this is your opportunity. You've got the WSB radio audience listening. There are five of you running for governor thus far in the Republican primary. Uh, Why you instead of them?
0: Well, I think voters are tired of of politicians uh, not delivering results. You know, personally, I'm proud of what our president's doing. President Trump is fighting, uh, and and the status quo is trying to beat him back at every turn. Um, And so, That's what my candidacy is going to look like, is we have clear ideas to help Georgia reach its full potential, um, but the status quo is going to be frustrated with our ideas because career politicians get rewarded for weakness and tepidness. If you go along to get along, if you don't put forth any big ideas, then the lobbyists and the special interests will fund your campaign and you'll get reelected. But that's not what we need. That's not what the voters want. They want somebody that comes from the world of results, everybody in this room comes from the world of results. If you have a business and you don't deliver results you go out of business. If you if you have a job and you don't deliver results you get fired. And you know I come from the world you know I'm an army ranger and and during combat I was trained to deliver results and if I didn't the lives of my men would have been at risk. But my life experience you know military combat had some business leadership experience and had uh, opportunities to fight for the values I believe in in the state senate. So I believe I'm uniquely qualified because of that diversity of leadership experience to tackle the tough issues, fight for what I believe in, and move people towards a common goal. And that's what I intend to do as everyone's next governor. State Senator Hunter Hill, thanks very much.
1: If you'd like to get a copy of this interview or any of the other interviews we've done, you can text the word SHOW to 444-999 and subscribe to The Eric Erickson Show podcast. I'm Eric Erickson on WSB. Thanks to our live studio audience and to you for listening. Have a good night.